Hello, captives and captive friends, and welcome to episode 42 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by legacy specialists R&Q and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. We have some excellent guests lined up in GCP 42, including a really insightful captive owner interview with Al Gear, Global Director of Risk Management and Insurance at General Motors, and a discussion on captive collateral options and trends with Hafi Ali and Simon Smith from Barclays. But first, I'm really happy to introduce for the first time a guest co-host from Bermuda's regulatory community, and she is Timay Flood, Assistant Director of Insurance Supervision at the Bermuda Monetary Authority. Timay, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really, really pleased to, to welcome you on. It's great to have this Bermuda presence on the podcast as well. Um, I guess there's only really one place to start with the uh, with 2020, and let's get one of the big issues out of the way, and that's regarding the pandemic. I know since June, particularly, the, the virus has been almost eradicated, I think, from the island, which is excellent news. But of course, being such an international center for finance, the knock-on effects are inescapable. As regulators, what steps has the BMA had to take in order to continue as as much as business as usual as possible during the pandemic? Yes, so it's been a very interesting time for us um, here in Bermuda as well. Um, By the third week of March, the majority of companies had commenced working from home. The BMA was able to seamlessly transition to working on a fully remote basis, maintaining all of our functions, including licensing, at levels that are comparable to us being in office. COVID-19 has had minimal impact on our capability and we're still available to licensed quality prospects who choose Bermuda as their domicile. Um, For our captives, having introduced the electronic filing system back in 2016 for any um, annual return submissions and applications related to the returns, it was mostly business as usual. For all other applications, we implemented a central applications box to allow the market to submit all applications electronically which allowed them to be logged and distributed to the appropriate teams. We've been able to accommodate just as many meetings, if not more, with the various stakeholders using the various virtual means such as Zoom and Microsoft Teams. This has allowed us to continue to be accessible. Fantastic. Yeah. So it does sound like you've adapted pretty, pretty well. In regards to substance and board meetings, could you outline what the guidelines are for, for board meetings in, in Bermuda anyway? And have these needed to be adjusted at all while, while corporate travel, of course, does, does remain uh, restricted? Yeah, early on in the pandemic, the BMA recognized that the disruptions caused by COVID-19 would mean the Bermuda registrants would be unable to hold physical board meetings in Bermuda, rather in the abundance of caution or um, based on travel restrictions, the closure of the airport for a period in, in April. Um, so in, I would say, mid-March, the BMA said it would not enforce this requirement during the first half of the year. And later on, we updated our position to extend until the end of the year. We recognized that holding the frequent board meetings was vital to managing the immediate and long-term challenges arising out of COVID-19. So therefore, we've advised registrants that we expect board meetings to be conducted virtually during this period. Yeah, that does that does sound familiar from some of the other um, updates and stories I've heard from other large jurisdictions that they have been able to be adaptive and, and to get guidelines out to out to captive owners. Um, for the purposes of, of listeners that might not be as familiar with Bermuda and, and the regulatory landscape, of course, Bermuda is the largest captive domicile in the world by captive numbers, by a uh, captive premium, I think as well. But it is also a very mature reinsurance and insurance linked securities jurisdiction. And so for the benefit of listeners who may 
may not be as familiar, as I said, with the different insurance classes in the jurisdiction. Could you just outline for us which of those insurance classes we tend to find uh, the captives licensed in? Sure. Um, There are five main captive classes. They're distinguished by the types of business being written. So we have classes one, two, and three, right in general business, and classes A and B, right in long-term business. Um, Just as a further breakdown, the class ones are going to be the single parent captives insuring risks of its owners or affiliates. The class two are multi-owner captives insuring risks of its owners or affiliates, and they have the ability to write up to 20% of its net premiums from unrelated risk. In our class three space, we have captive insurers underwriting more than 20% and less than 50% unrelated business. Our class A and B are kind of the long-term version of our ones and twos. Um, So class A is going to be our single parent again, writing only the risks of the owners and the affiliates. And our class B is similar to our class two, um, writing the long-term business of their owners and affiliates with the option to write up until up to 20% of net premiums from unrelated risks. Fantastic. Yeah, I know. But I think when I first joined Captive Review, oh, well, seven, yeah, good Lord, seven years ago now, um, <laughs> I, I did spend some time, you know, Bermuda, Cayman, Vermont, and other large jurisdictions. I did have to spend my time brushing up on on which each of the, how each of the jurisdictions defined and named their different types of captives. So it's always useful to know, I think, particularly as we come in towards the end of the year and next, at uh, the early next year, we'll start hearing numbers from all kinds of jurisdictions, including Bermuda in terms of in terms of new captive numbers. And and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, new captive numbers uh, and formation activity during 2020 and and how existing captives are responding to the hardening market in the second half of this conversation. But now we're going to hear from an existing captive owner and one of the oldest, most sophisticated captives in Bermuda. I had a really informative conversation with Al Gear, Global Director of Risk Management and Insurance at General Motors. And he talked to me all about their risk financing strategy, the role of the captive and how it has evolved over the past four decades. Yeah, Richard, we're coming up on our 40th anniversary. Uh, We were established back in 1981. So I think we were one of the first captives uh, in Bermuda and uh, was established with uh, very little capital and and, uh, uh, we've never had to add any capital to it. So uh, it's been a pretty successful venture. Yeah, absolutely. That is very interesting. And, and why was Bermuda chosen then? And I guess uh, to a degree, why is Bermuda still relevant for you now? Uh, I wasn't part of the uh, uh, original establishment uh, in Bermuda, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, uh, but, but I can tell you when I took over leadership of, of the captive back in uh, 2000, you know, obviously as a, as a new leader, I came in and, and looked and asked that exact question, you know, why Bermuda, uh, given there's so many other domiciles. But uh, as we looked at our history there, it uh, became quite uh, evident that uh, we had a great relationship with the regulators in Bermuda. Uh, we uh, had a lot of contacts around the island in terms of uh, the various uh, uh, service providers, you know, the accounting, the consulting, uh, the, insur- the insurance industry. When I looked at all of that and the fact that uh, as a major corporation, uh, we utilize a lot of capacity uh, in Bermuda. So uh, when you look at it all together, given the the times that I do come to Bermuda for insurance placements, and then, you know, so we got, you know, deeper and deeper into uh, how well the system works, how the governance, uh, the great reputation that Bermuda has, 
uh, it made perfect sense uh, that we went there and that uh, we stay there to this day. Yeah, and we're going to come on to some of those governance issues a little bit later in this in this conversation as well. So, you know, 40 years is is an incredible uh, amount of time for a captive, not just one of the oldest captives in Bermuda, but I imagine one of the oldest captives in the world. How has the captive been evolved over over its lifetime, uh, particularly in the last 20 years since, since you've been uh, running it? And does its purpose differ much today compared to its beginnings? Yeah, it has evolved uh, in a number of different ways. So, uh, you know, kind of the, the older strategy, you know, was to use a captive to allow business units to buy down deductibles that were more in keeping with uh, their local balance sheets and, um, you know, allow them to participate in various programs. And so that's what it was used for a lot. So, you know, initially the usual type casualty and, and property. And uh, as we looked at the captive back in about 2003, so you may recall there was a, uh, a rather brief but dramatic hardening of the market after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we took, we thought that was a good time to look at the real strategic use of the of the captive because uh, deductibles had shot up, coverages have changed, and we kind of questioned the wisdom of using the captive to buy down the deductibles in various uh, various organizations across the world. And so, uh, so we kind of took it out of that role and decided that uh, the captive probably best used for you know fronting arrangements uh, in areas where. You know, we had to provide insurance or at least evidence insurance, but we really weren't in the risk transfer. You know, we didn't have a really need for risk transfer. And the balance sheet was strong enough that uh, the captive could take some some significant risk in terms of the types of exposures we saw primarily outside uh, the United States. And so with that, you know, the captive became more of a, a front for uh, things like marine uh, coverage where you have to evidence at least to help lubricate trade. Um, and then also uh, in uh, you know, non-U.S. casualty where the risks weren't really that high. But again, we had to evidence things like auto liability. And then for various contracts, we had to provide coverage as well. So, you know, in that way, the uh, captive acted you know, almost like an, uh, a reinsurance company or an insurance company. And then another really big shift occurred probably about mid-decade there where we began to write a lot of international employee benefits. So that's an area that traditionally run by you know, human resource organizations. And um, they're great at defining benefits and doing all those kinds of things. But, you know, they would have a different program with a different broker, with a different insurer uh, in all these different countries, you know, across the world. And uh, we saw that it was quite inefficient for, you know, a group that, you know, buys insurance, you know, once a year or renews insurance once a year uh, where we had this expertise. And so we went to a, you know, a global uh, benefits uh, organization or, or, or program where the HR people would be allowed to define the benefits, whatever they, whichever way they want, but then we would take responsibility for financing uh, those benefits. So that program took a long time to put in place, but has certainly paid huge benefits and is a major part of our program today. Yeah, and I would say, you know, increasingly we look for some uh, low risk third party business, um, you know, working with the regulators and and um, only going after kind of short tail business. And, and again, to leverage the uh, balance sheet, which has grown over the years, 
and uh, allowed us to take you know some third-party business that makes sense for us through our our affiliations um, you know uh, throughout the company. Uh, so it's really not pure third-party business. We're not out shopping for unrelated, but more uh, things that uh, you know as being a major auto manufacturer might make sense for us. It takes you know certain types of third-party business. And so that's probably the last uh, evolution that we've had. Yeah, that, that's really interesting, Alan. I really appreciate that detail on how the captive has evolved over that time because you can quite clearly see the journey that General Motors has been on, and particularly over the last 20 years. You know, things like the employee benefits. We talk about EB quite a lot on the on the podcast. Uh, so it's interesting to hear you, you go down that route relatively recently. It, it seems over, it's really become apparent, Al, that the captive is very, very central to General Motors overall risk financing strategy is is that the case is the captive kind of the port of call for for everything that you look to buy whether it actually goes through the captive or not is it always in the conversation yeah i would say uh it is you know especially as we look at new types of coverages uh again we're not a um the captive will never be in a position to be a a, a provider of catastrophic coverage but uh we'll always look to see you know in the working layers uh, whether or not uh, we'd be better suited to take a particular exposure as opposed to transferring it uh, to the marketplace. And that has been particularly true in 2020, as we've seen a number of coverage lines, you know, harden uh, to such degree. And, and you're not even so much on the premium side, but even just the lack of available capacity. And so uh, we have been, you know, challenged somewhat to take on exposures that traditionally we would have risk transferred, but um, you know we look at it from uh, usually a quota share perspective. Uh, you know, is this something that we can leverage the available capital to? And maybe we're stretching ourselves a little bit, uh, you know, at times. But we say that's really the role of the captive. I mean, we really are there to provide a service, you know, to the business units and to take those risks where you know it just doesn't make financial sense to transfer. Uh, or, you know, after, a, you know, a lot of analytical and actuarial work, you know, seem to be you know, at certain price levels, uh, something that we would, you know, we would look at and say, you know what, that, that makes sense. Maybe it didn't make sense two, three years ago, but as long as we take a long-term perspective, then, you know, we feel pretty good about it. So with the, with the captive being so, so key to the overall risk financing strategy, how do you ensure that there is continuous buy-in? from the organization or is the captive already so embedded that you don't need to continue that task? Yeah, we have been uh, fortunate in that way. Um, you know, we report to the, the treasury group, our treasurers on, on our board and there are certain other stakeholders who are on our board that uh, really uh, helps them understand why we do what we do and, uh, you know, kind of take a little, a little bit of the mystery out of, out of the captive. And, you know, we apply a dividend strategy which uh, ensures that, you know, we're not sitting on lazy capital. I mean, when, you know, when we price something and it turns out we had a good year, you know, that capital is readily returned uh, to the business units um, uh, at, at the regional level. And so, so, you know, the major stakeholders like the CFO and others understand why we do what we do and then also understand that, you know, if things go well, um, you know, we dividend the, the money back. And so, that's created a number of fans uh, within within the organization. Mm-hmm. So they, they place a lot of trust in us that, you know, when we develop uh, premium rates and 
and you know when we handle claims and things that we're doing so uh, in the best interest of the entire enterprise and you know not just a captive. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, that's, that is certainly a good way to uh, to create buying if you can show that kind of transparency and that it's priced appropriately and then returned if 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 there's money available. How do you uh, how do you ensure the good governance then of the captive governance? We know is a is a it's always been important, but I think it's only increasingly important. And so, how do you ensure that good governance? And what what role does the the board play in that in Bermuda? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question, and uh, you know, an area where I'm very active in because of the um, you know again the fact that you know we're a very small group within a very large uh, corporation. So you know, we always want to make sure that it's easily communicated as to how well. Uh, we're minding the books. And, you know, I think the, the, the first part of that is really to, to have a board that is, you know, has a you know, financial acumen, obviously, but is also well connected within the organization. So as I mentioned, we have the treasurer. Uh, we have a, um, a director from our HR group. Uh, and then obviously we have a uh, director on the island itself. So these folks are, are quite familiar with the, with the operations uh, and then we have uh, separate committees. So we have a finance committee. We have an underwriting committee. Uh, we have a, a risk committee. And those are really the three main ones that we have operate you know, meet on a on an annual basis at least. And the underwriting committee, I think, is probably the most important. And the underwriting committee, we have very strict rules in terms of you know the type of like white paper that has to be developed on any. A new uh, or emergent risk, or something that we're going to maybe take in a different direction, um, and that uh, requires accounting. Um, our accounting group to buy off, our controllers group to buy off on the type of risk. So we give a number of different people the uh, ability to look at uh, any kind of new business uh, coming into into the captive, and then of course we monitor it going out. And then you know we follow you know, the rules that we're probably not even required to do. So we even look at, you know, what, what does AM best look at, look at, and we try to ensure that we meet, you know, all those requirements, even though we don't, uh, we don't have a rating for it, but we figure it's a good, uh, a good benchmark and a good uh, set of metrics uh, to follow. And then we also look at about eight or nine metrics, uh, return on capital and things like that. You know, we give a red, yellow, green every year at our annual general meeting and um, uh, and any kind of course correction that we need to do, um, we we, uh, we do that rather quickly on it. So, and again, you know, we're always reviewing any kind of changes coming down the pipe from uh, the Bermuda Monetary Authority, and uh, make sure we're in full compliance on that. Yeah, and and then just lastly, then how does the does the local infrastructure and uh, regulation in Bermuda kind of help uh, in any way in regards to ensuring you've got that good governance in place and you are running a company promptly and, and you're and you're meeting all the requirements? Absolutely, you know, I said we have such a long history uh, in Bermuda and you know good relations with uh, with the regulators. You know, we're very quick to, especially like in a new business. Uh, arena, you know, that we would, um, you know, we'd go to them and present our business plan and make sure that uh, everything is in keeping what what they're trying to accomplish in terms of keeping Bermuda, you know, one of the best uh, captive domiciles. Paul, they say there's more than one way to skin a cat, and I believe that's also true of offloading legacy liabilities. Yes, Richard, it is. 
you don't need to sell or dispose of your captive to release capital back to the parent or indeed to recycle it for future use in the captive. So what are the different options? Well, you can execute a lost portfolio transfer, which is a reinsurance structure, undertake an insurance business transfer, enter into novation or a deductible reimbursement policy. There's a whole range of solutions. And R&Q has experience in all of these types of transactions. Indeed, Richard, that's right. R&Q has completed over 70 legacy transactions with captive insurers and other self-insurance vehicles in traditional offshore jurisdictions, as well as those in the European Union and across the US. For the second year, R&Q is the headline partner for the Global Captive Podcast for 2020. You can find more information and contact details for their experts on globalcaptivepodcast.com. If you have legacy, you should contact R&Q. Well, we will be back with Timé Flood from the Bermuda Monetary Authority shortly, but we are now going to hear from Hafi Ali, Market Director, and Simon Smith, Head of Offshore Investments for Jersey, Guernsey and Isle of Man at Barclays Corporate Banking, to discuss a topic we haven't previously covered on GCP, and that is collateral requirements and how the needs of captive owners are changing. So, Hafi, perhaps uh, we could start if you could just give us, you know, it's the first time Barclays have been on to the Global Captive podcast. Uh, you guys are involved in captives in, in a number of ways. Perhaps you can give us a brief breakdown of, of how uh, yourselves do work with uh, captive insurance companies. Yeah, absolutely, Richard. And um, thanks for inviting us on to GCP. I've been a big fan and listener for a long time. Uh, to give you some context, Barclays has dedicated specialist insurance banking teams located across the globe, covering 11 major financial centres. So we understand the sector deeply and have specialist teams covering general and life brokers and non-specialty insurers, legacy and captive insurance. We've actually been involved in the captive insurance industry since its origination back in the 60s, giving us a deep understanding of its complexities and needs, matching global presence with local on-the-ground knowledge to offer solutions that support captives' financial objectives. We're actually part of the wider international corporate banking team, which means we work with captive insurance clients and their parents to provide a more complete and holistic approach, aligning with the needs of the parent company's corporate treasury department. Fantastic. Cheers, Happy. It's a really good way to, to introduce listeners to Barclays if they're not already familiar with, with your involvement in captives. I guess uh, you know, our main focus today is going to be more on, on the banking side of things regards to letters of, tre- letters of credit and trusts and that kind of thing and collateral particularly. What are, what are some of the common options for captives when considering collateral options? Yeah. So Richard, in terms of collateral options, reinsurance obligations can be secured through a number of methods, some of which we'll run through below which are the main options for cedents and reinsurers. Each have their own merits. And uh, of course, you know, you should seek independent advice as to which suits your needs better. But let's start off with security interest agreements or pledges of cash and security. These are probably less secure than trust agreements and letters of credit in that they effectively lodge an assignment over a particular bank account or security. You can have an open or blocked agreements preventing certain activities on that account. This may be unattractive to reinsurers due to the risk that uh, insolvent cedents will not transfer earned cedent premiums or investment returns on the funds withheld. It will require the reinsurance to establish against the liquidator that the funds are held outside the insolvent estate under an implied trust in respect of funds not required to meet claims. That said, it serves a good purpose and is relatively cheap to set up with minimal paperwork. But if I move on to trust agreements, this is common in the US because it complies with Section 114 of the New York Insurance Administrative Code. 
Here, a tripartite agreement is set up with the client, the reinsurer, and the bank acting as a trustee. Trust can be less expensive than other options and may work when entities are small. However, it comes with the inherent lack of flexibility. Such trusts are unattractive to reinsurers since, like funds withheld, they do not provide security or priority to the reinsurer for payment or premiums if the sealant becomes insolvent and withdraws uh, funds from the trust as permitted under regulation. The investment policy of the trust must be acceptable to the beneficiary and comply with applicable regulations. While this may be more restrictive than a letter of credit collateral account, the total cost of the trust agreement is usually lower than the cost of a letter of credit. And then finally, letters of credit. In Europe, this is the preferred option, and typically you would see this collateralized by way of investment or cash. It's pretty straightforward. The captive needs to reinsure the risk. The fronting insurer is looking for collateral. And here, the letter of credit is coming from a reputable rated bank that's recognized for being good for the money. Letters of credit can also be effective in securing reinsurance obligations, even when not required by law, and can be tailored to meet the specific needs of a sedent and reinsurer. Letters of credit can usually generally be drawn on demand, notwithstanding the terms of reinsurance, and are considerably more expensive than trust or pledge arrangements, since the bank is assuming personal liability for making payments to the sedent. Despite the collateral, it still requires credit sign-off, as it remains on the bank's books as a contingent liability. But I'll let Simon pick up on using investments as collateral. Thanks, Hafi. So uh, I guess the first thing I'd say about um, uh, the, the common options for, for captives around collateral uh, facilities, you know, there's, there's trapped capital in everything that, um, that Hafi has described. So the trick is really about when you're thinking around investment policy, how do you maximize the asset returns from each area, be that your sort of matching adjustment assets, your other matching assets and your surplus assets, whilst minimizing the risk from the liabilities from the insurance programs themselves. So what we often find is insurance is considered the, the core risk, which clearly it is, but ensuring that really prudent capital management, preservation when times are tight and using your assets for growth when less so is what differ- differentiates the good from the bad and some of the structures that, um, that Hafi's described have different ability to, to, to do that. You know, we'd advocate that delegation and sufficient flexibility is absolutely key to ensure no drag on, on management attention within a structure or poor decision-making. Uh, because whether we like it or not, the, the risk of either capital preservation or real interest rate exposure and asset return are significant and they, they need to be managed. And this is also where we see the structures that Hafi's described coming into play, the trust versus the LOC uh, as an example. Now, how flexible are the guidelines within a trust versus the LC? And what are the driving factors and returns that the captive is trying to achieve? You know, the reason that we think that this is super important at the moment, with QE doing its job, with interest rates negative in real terms, the long-term solution can't be cash alone. This low forever theme is something that we're hearing more and more in the market. And managing against that needs a different mentality and a different amount of risk and governance to, to control it. Using simple broad asset classes to match the captive's objectives and trade the risk that you're willing to take for the returns that, that you require is, is the key. So, for example, long-term policies with low loss severity, high loss frequency allows duration to be used within a portfolio. Or an overcapitalization of a structure allows equity markets to be used. Conversely, at early life cycle, as cash flows tighten, using risk-off solutions to de-risk even beyond cash on balance sheet becomes really important. 
So one of the, um, just just lastly, chaps, um, obviously the, the hot topic in the insurance market and for captives this year and, and last year, and I, I imagine next year, is obviously this extremely hard market. Uh, it looks like it's hardening. I imagine the pandemic will only kind of exasperate things before they get better. So as captives do look to take on more risk and, and write new lines, does that change at all the conversation in, in relation to collateral options and strategies, or is it simply happy that the numbers just become bigger? Well, Richard, absolutely. Um- um, we've seen, for example, Guernsey, a leading captive jurisdiction in Europe, have um, has had positive interest and growth, both in the pipeline and formation of new captives. And to your point, companies with existing captive structures will also be expanding the use of their captives. The resultant is in this means that we have seen greater and deeper discussions with clients on the type of structure they're putting in place. This in turn also where fronting insurers are used choice of collateral, as mentioned previously. In an environment where euros are negative, sterling may follow, and US dollar at all times low, it has led to some interesting conversations around underlying security away from cash. So, yeah, the the question around is the conversation changing? The, The short answer is yes. And what are we seeing in the market at the moment? That you know, a large amount of uh, the dialogue is around liquidity management as, as the new premiums are, uh, are gathered, the new lines are being written. But it's quickly rotating, actually, to, to, to longer-term thinking, to assets and liability management as cash flows stabilize and claims uh, evolve over time so we get a better history to, to work from. And we've also got a recurring debate in this space in that, in that many people consider investments as, as risk. You know, our, our risk is in the insurance. We don't want to take additional risk. But we'd argue this is the wrong way to, to think about investments. And we sort of almost take the word investments away and just say it, it's about asset and liability management. And you know, we see a lot of sort of traditional, almost lazy use of cash being as, perceived as the ex- acceptable baseline and that people feel that that's risk-free. But it's, you know, cash itself carries a number of inherent risks in itself, not least uh, liquidity and credit. So I go back to trading the risk that you naturally have within the business. And that could be things like duration. It could be currency. It could be certain insurance market exposures. And then you can start trading those for the best risk-adjusted returns to either offset those risks or to complement the risk within the business. We're seeing in, increasing interest in the near cash space. And it's not just fixed income, uh, traditional fixed income investments, but also structured solutions where, where you're leveraging price opportunities, such as funding appetite of issuers, dislocated market views. They can help deliver return profiles that actually match the captive's objectives rather than work against them. So finally, I'd say that remember, the markets can stay irrational longer than, than you can necessarily stay solvent. So planning based on what's actually happening in the markets right now, mapping that back to what your captive and the structure is actually trying to achieve rather than planning and thinking and wishing what should be happening in the market is key. A lot of the market at the moment is irrational. So stay away from populist uh, opinion. Our um, industry is littered with sort of broken promises and, and crystal balls. I think professional delegation based on an investment and management agreement that sets out what you're trying to achieve on the asset side of the balance sheet and make sure that you're looking at the most common pitfalls, which we can, we can explore in, in further detail at another session. Welcome back to the Global Captive Podcast, where I am joined by Tamei Flood, Assistant Director of Insurance Supervision at the Bermuda Monetary Authority. Tamei, in 2019, the BMA registered 22 new captives, ending the year on 715 captives, writing gross premiums of $40 billion. Uh, annually. 
as we speak now at the start of November, how is how is 2020 currently shaping up in regards to formation activity? Yes, yeah, so 2019, you are correct, was a very good year in terms of registrations. Um, despite COVID-19, the BMA has licensed 44 new insurers and four intermediaries wow. as at the end of September 2020. So that is a registration mix of 28 limited purpose insurers. That includes 18 special purpose insurers, eight captives, one collateralized insurer, and an innovative general business insurer, as well as 16 traditional commercial reinsurers. So um, it's been pretty busy. As I said, we've, we've remained open for business. Um, amid these registrations, the interest in the Bermuda market has only increased, evidenced by the number of meetings we've held with potential owners expressing their interest to pursue a captive license in Bermuda to meet their varying needs. So what we're seeing is the industry is really assessing their, their risk landscape, assessing how they can better utilize their captives rather than that be the uh, existing captives or companies wishing to establish a new captives for their own purposes. Yeah, they're re- really interesting, big, big numbers there. And of course, that was just to, to the end of September, uh, as you mentioned. And I know that often, I think a lot of activity does tend to happen in the last quarter of the year. So I imagine you're going to be busy. Are you you're expecting to be busy the next couple of months? Yes, yes. The, the activity has continued to um, grow. Um, we're seeing a lot of interest, so we expect that those registration numbers will continue to move um, forward as we continue throughout the remainder of the year. And so have you seen any, any trends with regards to geographies or specific sectors or, or types of risks that the applications, uh, captive applications you've been dealing with have, have particularly focused on during, the, during this year? Um, As a consistent licensing trend, what we've seen is captive formations predominantly coming from large corporations located in the United States and more recently in Canada. So um, as per the latest edition of our BMA captive report, 62% of Bermuda's captive market originates from from North America and Bermuda. With respect to current times, we also expect captive opportunities to arrive from coverages that become more restrictive in reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, opportunities will also exist in certain lines, i.e. cyber with a larger threat surface, with digital transformation, business interruption, and other lines requiring tailored coverage or where there is limited capacity or significant price hardening. Yeah, and you, you mentioned hardening there to me, and obviously the hardening insurance market unsurprisingly puts captives uh, back into the spotlight. And of course, as, as you've mentioned, and we've heard from others, you know, really, really high interest in new captive formations and activity in, in regions all around the world. As well as the new formations, though, the, the hard market usually manifests itself in existing captive owners writing more businesses, uh, higher attentions, and, and new lines. Um, and we heard from Al earlier in, on the podcast, you know, a captive like theirs, and, and Bermuda does have a lot of very sophisticated, very large captives. It's not just a number of captives that you guys have, but it's the, the size of them and the, and the premium volume. As, as a regulator, what does what role does the BMA play in assessing changing business plans of captives and, and ensuring that they have the capital to write expanded business where they are looking to do so? Well, we regularly engage with applicants to discuss their business plan or the insurance licensing application process prior to the submission of the formal application. So the dialogue is encouraged because the formal application is going to include the feedback that was provided by the authority, which allows us to expedite the review in a timely manner. The business plan submission is reviewed by our team made of made up of licensing, supervision, actuarial representatives. So we ensure we agree the approach being taken and the capital available to accept the new exposure. 
um, we we definitely encourage the open discussions uh, as part of the application process. Um, and that's prior to any licenses being issued or any extension of the lines of business or limits, as you've mentioned. Um, so we just, we just continue to keep an open door when it comes to captive owners with many availing themselves of the opportunities to give updates and comments on the state of the industry. So just, just lastly then, one, one other area I found interesting from just, just looking over some of the activity in Bermuda in the, in the last year was that the BMA carried out a consultation earlier this year regarding operational cyber risk management for the insurance sector. What were the outcomes of this and, and does it have any kind of knock-on effect from for the captive insurers that are under your jurisdiction? Sure. So um, on 30th of December 2019, the authority issued a consultation paper about the insurance sector operational cyber risk management code of conduct. The paper impacts all Bermuda insurers, including captives. So based on the comments received from the consultation, the authority responded that it would assess the registrant's compliance with the code in a proportionate manner relative to its nature, scale and complexity. This is in line with our risk-based approach. The code comes into force on 1st of January 2021. Um, the enforcement date was originally set to be 30th of June 2021, but in recognition of the current pandemic disruption, the authority has pushed the enforcement date back to 31st of December 2021. Um, so there will be a bit of a transition period, but we've we've um, we've been working with the companies um, from last year to ensure that they are well on their way to being compliant with the code. Fantastic. So that's one to definitely look out for next year. Well, that is all we have time for on the Global Captive Podcast this time out in episode 42. I would just like to say thank you to all of our guests, Hafi, Ali and Simon Smith at Barclays, our gear of General Motors, and of course, Timay Flood of the Bermuda Monetary Authority. Thank you for coming on to the podcast, Timay. Great. Thank you so much, Richard. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.